right, I think we finished uh, Revelation 19 last time. Is that in fact true? So we should be starting on Revelation 20? All right. Revelation 20 it is. Then I saw an angel coming down from heaven, holding in his hand the key to the bottomless pit and a great chain. He seized the dragon, that ancient serpent who is the devil and Satan, and bound him for a thousand years and threw him into the pit and shut it and sealed it over him so that he could not deceive the nations any longer until the thousand years were ended. After that, he must be released for a little while. Okay. So we've just had the Battle of Armageddon, which is at the end of uh, Revelation 19, uh, verse 17. And in that process, the false prophet and the beast get captured, and they get flung into uh, a lake of fire. And Satan is also captured, but it doesn't say that back up in Revelation 19. So he's thrown into the pit, and why is he thrown into the pit and left there for a thousand years? It turns out that I I think that there's a good reason for it. I I mean, I know there is. God did it, so (laughs) got to be a good reason for it. If you go to Joshua chapter 10, and I'll start at verse 1, and I'm going to skip, I'm not going to read the whole thing but I'm going to skip a couple of places. As soon as Adonai Zedek, king of Jerusalem, heard how Joshua had captured Ai and had devoted it to destruction, doing to Ai and its king as he had done to Jericho and its king, and how the inhabitants of Gibeon had made peace with Israel or among them, he feared greatly, because Gibeon was a great city, like one of the royal cities, and because it was greater than Ai, and all its men were warriors. So Adonai Zedek, Adonai Zedek, king of Jerusalem, sent to Hoham, king of Hebron, to Piram, king of Yarmouth, to Japhia, king of Lachish, and to Debir, king of Eglon, saying, Come up to me and let us strike Gibeon, for it has made peace with Joshua and the peace of the people of Israel. Okay, I know I've said this before, but I'll say it again. The book of uh, Joshua is rehearsal for the book of Revelation. Because what you have in the book of Joshua is the reclamation of land that is in the hands of the ungodly by the children of Israel, and they are led by a great captain called Yeshua, Joshua, same name. So what I'm going to suggest to you here is this business in in Joshua chapter 10 reflects directly on what Yeshua is doing with Satan for a thousand years. So the first thing to understand is you know, they've invaded, the, the land is in the hand of uh, usurpers basically, and it's been given to Israel, but they've got to fight to take it back. And so they're under the command of Joshua, and, and they start going, and, and you all know the story of the Gibeonites who trick Israel into making a treaty with them instead of getting wiped out like was intended. What then happens is once Gibeon changes sides, Gibeah is right in the middle of the Saddle of Benjamin. And of course, again, those of you who have been through the geography lessons know that the Saddle of Benjamin is is a key piece of terrain in the land of Israel. It's It's a saddle that goes from east to west across the country from the Jericho Valley to the plain of the Shephelah in the Mediterranean. 
And whoever controls that saddle basically controls both the east-west and the north-south routes through Israel. So it's, it's a key piece of terrain. Gibeon is on it. And so when Gibeon changes sides, that basically puts Israel in control of the saddle of Benjamin. Now, Jerusalem, of course, is on the southern edge of the saddle of Benjamin. Hebron is further on down the central ridge route. Lachish is up in the north of, up north of the Jezreel Valley. And Eglon is on the coastal plain. So these guys who live in Israel know that this is a key piece of terrain and they can't let Gibeon change sides. Otherwise, basically, they've, they've given, up the, given up the invasion. So what they do is they rally together and they're going to go take out Gibeon and reoccupy the central ridge, or the central ridge route and the, the saddle of Benjamin. So, to, as I say, I'm not going to read all this, uh, but in verse 6, the many of Gibeon sent to Joshua in the camp of Gilgal, saying, Do not relax your hand from your servants. Come up to us quickly and save us and help us, for all the kings of the Amorites who dwell in the hill country are gathered against us. So Gibeon, who has just made this fraudulent treaty, then turns around and invokes that treaty and says, All right, we're about to be hit by our former buddies, uh, you need to come help us. So Joshua hats everybody up, and they head out. And God says in verse uh, 8, uh, Do not fear them, for I have given them into your hands. Not a man of them shall stand before you. So Joshua came upon them suddenly, having marched up all night from Gilgal. And the Lord threw them into a panic before Israel, who struck them with a great blow at Gibeon and chased them all by way of the ascent of Beth Haran, and struck them as far as Azekah and Makeda. And as they fled before Israel, while they were going down the ascent of Beth Haran, and the Beth Haran Ridge Route is basically a ridge that comes off the central north-south ridge. It's a ridge that comes off and goes to the west and goes down through Beth Haran. That's why it's called the Beth Haran Ridge Route. And as they're going, God throws gigantic hailstones on them and, and so forth. And, and again, we're not going through all of that. So I'm down in verse 15. So Joshua returned and all Israel with him to the camp of Gilgal. These five kings fled and hid themselves at the cave at Makeda. It was told to Joshua. So now Joshua has basically routed him from the central ridge route. He's pulled back. And these five kings that started this whole thing have fled to a cave in Makeda. And so it was told to Joshua, the five kings have been found hidden in the cave of Makeda. And Joshua said, roll large stones against the mouth of the cave and set men by it to guard them. Seal the pit. So you have Yeshua who has captured Satan, throws him into a pit and seals it. Joshua has captured these five kings they are in a cave, and he seals it. And Joshua said, Roll large stones against the mouth of the cave, and set men by it to guard them. But do not stay there, here, there yourselves. Pursue your enemies, attack their rear guard. Do not let them enter their cities, for the Lord our God, is, your God, has given them into your hand. So what he's saying is, all right, we've got these kings sealed up. We need to continue the campaign to take the land. 
So what he's doing is he's continuing his campaign while these kings are basically holed up in a cave that they can't go anywhere. So what I'm going to suggest to you is that that's the pattern for what Yeshua is doing with Satan. Basically, he has decapitated the armies, sealed them up, and gone on then to continue his conquest. Yeshua is doing the same thing with Satan, taking the leadership and sealing it up in a pit for a thousand years while he goes on and finishes his conquest of the land. Now, there's some other stuff going on with Yeshua that we'll get back and talk about in a minute, but I see these two situations as being exactly analogous. Okay? They're both doing the same thing for the same reason. I'm back in Joshua chapter 10, verse 20. When Joshua and the sons of Israel had finished striking them with a great blow until they were wiped out, and then the remnant that remained of them had entered into the fortified cities, then all the people returned safe to Joshua in the camp of Makeda. Not a man moved his tongue against any of the people of Israel, which is to say, when they came back, there wasn't anybody harassing them. They, they had finished smiting the enemy and were coming back victorious. 22. Then Joshua said, Open the mouth of the cave and bring those five kings out to me from the cave. And they did so, and brought those five kings out from the cave, and the king of Jerusalem, the king of Hebron, the king of Yarmouth, the king of Lachish, and the king of Eglon. And when they brought these kings out to Joshua, Joshua summoned all the men of Israel and said to the chiefs of the men of war who had gone with him, Come near, put your feet on the necks of those kings. Then they came near and put their feet on their necks. And Joshua said to them, Do not be afraid or dismayed, be strong and courageous, for thus the Lord will do to all your enemies against whom you fight. So what he's doing is he's humiliating these kings. So again, the idea is this is by way of bucking up his own army. So what we've done is we just fought a great battle, clobbered all the Amorites, and now here are their kings, and everybody could walk by and put your foot on their neck, and God will do that to everybody we face, but the idea here is what you're doing is you're making your enemy look small so that your own troops will be encouraged and more confident. In other words, we beat these guys, we humiliated them, and the next bunch isn't going to be any different. 25. And Joshua said to them, Do not be afraid or dismayed. Be strong and courageous, for thus the Lord will do to all your enemies against whom you fight. And afterwards Joshua struck them and put them to death, and he hanged them on five trees, and they hung on the trees until evening. But at the time of the going down of the sun, Joshua commanded, and they took them down from the trees and threw them into the cave where they had hidden themselves and set very large stones against the mouth of the cave, which remained to this very day. So basically he threw them back into the pit after they were dead and sealed the pit back up. Okay? So I'm suggesting to you that the thousand-year binding of Satan is in the same spirit as what has gone on with Joshua. And so the question then is, if I'm right, and I think I am or I wouldn't have said it, what is Yeshua doing during those thousand years which is analogous to continuing the conquest? Let's put a, a marker here on what Yeshua is doing because the things that are going on, uh, verse 4, 5, and 6, then I saw thrones and seated on them were those to whom authority to judge had been was committed. I also saw the souls of those who had been beheaded for the testimony of Yeshua and for the word of God 
and those who had not worshipped the beast or its image and had not received its mark on their foreheads or their hands. They came to life and reigned with Christ for a thousand years. So we have here a resurrection. And there are three, two, possibly three groups of people. Those to whom the authority to judge has been committed. Those who were beheaded for the testimony of Yeshua. And those who did not worship the beast or its image and have not received its mark on their forehead. This is clearly the first resurrection. After This is after the seventh trumpet. That's when the rapture occurs. The dead are raised and then we who are not dead be caught up in the air. That, I believe, happens at the seventh trumpet. This is the seventh trumpet time frame we're reading about here in Revelation 20. In other words, it's one of these interludes where they give background. This business of the resurrection and being raised from the dead, I believe, happens at the end of the seventh trumpet. So, that, so, so even though we're in Revelation 20 here, this is a parenthesis, if you will, from the three sequences of seven. Again, did I say all that so it made sense? Okay. Don't have to believe it. I just, it just, that's just what makes sense to me. It doesn't necessarily mean it's right. So anyway, in this resurrection, I see three distinctly named groups of people, only one of which is genuinely, for sure, without a doubt, dead. And those are the ones that got beheaded. The other two groups can be a mixture of those who are dead and those who are raptured. All I'm doing is, is grammar here. So, we, And then the rest of the dead did not come to life until the thousand years were ended. This is the first resurrection. Blessed and holy is the one who shares in the first resurrection. Over such, the second death has no power. But they will be priests of God and of Christ, and they will reign with him for a thousand years. Okay, now, so my question is, all of this is happening while Satan is freshly thrown in a pit. So I, I'm suggesting all of this is happening in, in fairly short order. You have the Battle of Armageddon, Christ wins, captures the false prophet, captures the beast, flips them into the lake of fire, captures Satan, binds him for a thousand years. We got resurrection of the just. And so all of that happens, I believe, at the beginning of the thousand years. And so what then is the Messiah doing for those thousand years? I think so. I think so. I think what what is Joshua doing? Occupying the promised land. Yeshua is going to do the same thing. As I read Paul, basically at the beginning of that process, everybody who is one of his is sucked into the overhead or raised. Trumpet will sound and and the dead in Christ will be raised and we will not all sleep but all, you know, all that kind of stuff. So all of the believers at this point are with him. So everybody else is a non-believer. And so what I think he's doing is he is establishing his kingdom, which is the earth. What he is also doing is giving everybody at that point who is alive an opportunity to acknowledge him as Lord and King that becomes important for the second resurrection because you're going to have people during that thousand years who are going to die. Yeah? 
as a nation acknowledging that you've got to come up and serve the king in order to get your reign is different than coming to Yeshua in the sense that modern Christians understand it. But what I'm saying is everything in Scripture indicates that God wants to live with people, and he will at the end. And what I believe he wants to do is turn as many people into disciples of himself as will turn. And that's different than ruling the nations. He's, he's going he's gonna to run the place. I mean, he'll get the trains to run on time and, you know, the garbage will get collected and all that kind of stuff. He'll do all that, but I don't think that's what he's actually trying to conquer. What he's trying to do is extend his personal dominion over people, individuals. Write the Torah on their hearts, however you want to describe it. I think that's what he's trying to do. And I think that's what the purpose of that thousand years is. And at the end of the thousand years, what he's going to find out is how many of them he got. Because there's going to be a bunch that are not going to be willing to become his. Just as there have always been a bunch that have not been willing to become his. But the difference is, prior to the thousand year reign, lots and lots of people have decided not to become his out of deception. They've been deceived by Satan, they've been deceived by humanity, etc. And what he's done now in this thousand years is he's gotten all that flack out of the way and he's standing there himself in person, the king of kings. And he's saying, all right, now all the fluff is cut away. Satan isn't here to confuse you. You can see me. You know, I'm, I am like the pillar of fire in the middle of your camp, Israel. You can see me. Now the question is, are you going to come to me? Are you going to be mine or not? Okay. And during that thousand years, I think people are going to make that decision both ways and are going to die. You know, the normal death and birth of humanity is going to continue just as it was before. You got a thousand years is 30 or 40 generations that are going to be given that opportunity without intellectual interference. So what I'm suggesting to you is, is the thousand years is completely analogous to what's happening while Joshua has got these five kings sealed up in a cave. Okay? They're out of the way. They aren't leading anybody against him. And he is then going out and consolidating his conquest. Or at least his conquest of that part of the land. I mean, he goes, there are other campaigns. Now we're back in Revelation, and I'll pick it up at 7. And when the thousand years were ended, Satan will be released from his prison and will come out to deceive the nations that are at the four corners of the earth, Gog and Magog, to gather them for battle. Their number is like the sand of the sea. And they marched up over the broad plain of the earth and surrounded the camp of the saints and the beloved city. But fire came down from heaven and consumed them. And the devil who had deceived them was thrown into the lake of fire and sulfur where the beast and the false prophets were, and they will be tormented day and night forever and ever. Okay, so what happens then is at the end of the thousand years, Satan's released and he goes back and does his Satan-y thing and whips up an army 
And uh, again, we, we've seen this before. Where have we seen this before? At Gethsemane. At Gethsemane. Yeah, because they're, when they're trying to arrest him, they send a, I think it's a cohort, I don't remember, but a, anyway, a, a body of Roman soldiers up to get him. And they said, you know, are you Yeshua? And he says, I am. And knocks them all flat. And, and, and the, the analogy I would use, it would be like a guy, one of the things that uh, they used to do when swords were in play is when you, you got mad at somebody but you didn't want to kill him, you smacked him with the flat of your sword, which just knocked him sprawling, but it didn't kill him. So at Gethsemane, it's, he pulled out the sword of, the voice, of his voice and smacked him with the flat of it, which is to say he just knocked him down. This time he's going to hit him with the edge and wipe him out. And as I say, he doesn't even bother to mount his army up. He just does it himself. A couple other things that are going on here, obviously. This absolutely disproves evolution because in a thousand years under ideal conditions, people haven't gotten any better. Evolution would say that, you know, given the right conditions, people will continue to improve. People haven't improved at all. They've had a thousand years of ideal conditions where you have the, the king of kings, God himself ruling on earth, and they haven't changed at all. Verse 11. Then I saw a great white throne, and him who was seated on it, from his presence earth and sky fled away, and no place was found for them. Now, we're going to get a new heaven and a new earth. I would suggest to you that this is the point where the old one melts down. They basically, they, they flee from his presence, which is to say, when he is getting ready to reestablish the thing the way it's supposed to be, the old one you know, withers away like a piece of saran wrap in front of a blast furnace. And I saw the dead, great and small, standing before the throne, and books were opened. Then another book was opened, which is the book of life. And the dead were judged by what was written in the books, according to what they had done. And the sea gave up the dead who were in it. Death and Hades gave up the dead who were in them. And they were judged, each one of them, according to what they had done. So what we've got then is two sets of books. So there are books in which everybody's deeds are recorded. And those who participate in the second resurrection which is everybody who wasn't in the first resurrection, and perhaps, I think, those who are alive in Christ at the time of his return. I don't, I don't think any of those folks are, you know, whether they actually died or not, I don't think any of those folks are involved here. So everybody else gets judged, and he specifically gets judged according to what he has done. Actions, behavior. Doesn't say anything about being judged about what he thought. Okay. Remember, Hebrews and action language. What counts is what you do. Then you have the book of life. I mean, the, the whole point of judgment is you open this stuff up and you look at it and you make a determination. Now, I can look at, or if I could look at any of your lives or whatever, I could certainly make judgments about you. I mean, I'm not authorized to do that, but if I were, I could certainly do it if I had all those, that information. You understand what I'm saying? And if it is binary, life or death, then why are we going through all these books? 
there, there are two functions. There's the function of a judge and there's the function of the king. And those two functions have two, are, are, are completely different. What a judge should do is look at the circumstances and determine guilt or innocence. Okay, that's what a judge does. Looks at the circumstances, determines guilt or innocence, and then goes to a table of punishments, assuming you're guilty, and says, all right, based on all this, this is what your punishment is, period. It is the function of a king, then, to exercise mercy or harshness as he chooses. So it isn't the function of a king to say, you're guilty, you're guilty, you're innocent, you're innocent. That's the function of a judge. Now, in this case, we've got both judge and king in one being, God, Yeshua. So what Ray is suggesting, and I agree with him, is, first off, if there's, if it's binary, in other words, if you're in the book of life, why are we going through all this because you're living? If you're not in the book of life, why are we going through all this? Why don't we just, you know, throw you into the lake of fire? Why are we bothering? In other words, why go through the book of what you've done if there's nothing that can be done? And so what Ray is suggesting, and as I say I agree with him, is once you have been judged, and all of us will be judged and found wanting, then at that point you have the opportunity to throw yourself on the mercy of the king. Not the judge, the king. Because pardon, if you will, is an executive function. Judgment is a judicial function. Again, did I say it so it made sense? Yeah. Yeah, you could certainly look at that as happening here. That basically you look at everything you did and only the stuff that doesn't get burned up in the process remains. But that see, that's for awarding crowns. Okay, that's not really for determining life and death. Okay, and, and what we've got here at the White Throne is who's going to live and who isn't. Not what kind of rewards are you going to get, just are you going to live or not. So again, what happens here, I think, is you are now standing before God and the deceiver is not there. And certainly you can say, I was tricked, I was deceived, I was whatever, and throw yourself on the mercy of the king if you choose. There will be people who won't. They will simply say, don't want any part of this. How all that works, I don't know. I'm just, again, reading from what's going on here. And there isn't any point in a lot of this if there's no change. Well, the other thing to understand is as you're standing there, even though you may be really, 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 really ashamed and embarrassed, which I plan to be, you do not stand there as a sinner. Because your sins have been forgiven. Okay, Remember when Yeshua shed his blood, he shed them for everybody. So at this point, it is not the case that you are standing there as a sinner. You have been forgiven. The question is, are you going to cleave to God or not? Anyway, let's finish the chapter 14. Then death and Hades were thrown into the lake of fire. This is the second death, the lake of fire. And if anyone's name is not found written in the book of life, he was thrown into the lake of fire. Uh, we got I didn't get a chance to go through book of life, by the way. The book of life is only mentioned one other place outside of Revelation. 
It's in uh, Philippians 4.3. And Paul says, Yes, I ask you also, true companion, help these women who have labored by my side with me in the gospel together with Clement and the rest of my fellow workers whose names are in the book of life. That's the only other mention in Scripture of the book of life. The closest thing to the book of life in the Old Testament that I have found is in Daniel 12. At that time shall arise Michael, the great prince who has charge of your people, and there shall be a time of trouble such as never has been since there was a nation till that time. But at that time your people shall be delivered, everyone whose name shall be found written in the book. And many of those who sleep in the dust of the earth shall awake, some to everlasting life and some to shame and everlasting contempt. And those who are wise shall shine like the brightness of the sky above, and those who turn many to righteousness like the stars forever and ever. But you, Daniel, shut up the words and seal the book until the time of the end. Many shall run to and fro, and knowledge shall increase. So this particular book looks like it only has got Hebrews in it. At least the way the grammar is written in book in Daniel. And it does it is not specifically the book of life, but it seems to operate the same way. Yes, there's the book of the living. Again, let's go there. Psalm sixty nine twenty eight. Let them be blotted out of the book of the living. Let them not be enrolled among the righteous. This is a this is a Psalm of David, and basically he's taking a stripe off of his enemies. And it isn't really clear that we're talking about the book of life in the, in the final judgment sense or whether we're talking about kill them, God. In other words, take them from the land of the living. So anyway, that's what I know about the book of life at this point. We're way over time. Would somebody like closing prayer? Please consider becoming a sponsor. Please visit crimsonthread.com purpose for an explanation of what we're doing and perhaps to become a sponsor. Thank you.